Hello, my name is Naomi Shi, and you're listening to MIR Spotlights, a podcast that features MIR's Writer of the Week as chosen by our editorial board. To end off our 2020-2021 publishing year, we have on the podcast Aiden Chan, whose piece titled, Ontario's Highway 413, Another Dose of North America's Asphalt Addiction, details how Ontario's progressive conservative government is pursuing destructive urban design principles that fail to tackle the root causes of congestion. My name is Aidan Chan. I just finished my third year doing PolySign Econ. I'm from Toronto and I'm a staff writer for the McGill International Review. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Aidan. Pleasure to be here, Naomi. All right, so let's jump right ahead. So you wrote an article that analyzed the decision made by the Conservative government in Ontario to build a 59km highway outside the greater Toronto area. Um, can you give us a brief overview on the government's reasoning for this Highway 413 and I guess its broader implications for the area? Yeah, absolutely. So the government's reasoning is is threefold, really. First is to alleviate gridlock. Gridlock costs the Greater Toronto Area, or GTA, approximately $6 billion a year in lost productivity, and that's a lowball estimate. So they're trying to reduce this gridlock, and they also recognize that the GTA is rapidly expanding. It's one of the uh, highest population growth areas in the country, let alone the continent of North America. Uh, and so in light of this population growth, uh, their thinking here is that we need more highway capacity uh, to accommodate this growth, to accommodate um, more housing supply and so on. And so that is why they want to build this highway. In particular, there's a missing link, they think, uh, from the western part of the region to the northern part of the region. And that is the link they're trying to fill with the Highway 413. In terms of the implications, uh, we'll go into some of the costs and benefits more, I'm sure. But broadly speaking, this is a, a multi-billion dollar project. So it's expensive. And it would go through the green belt, which is a protected area around the GTA that prevents sprawl. So there's a lot of economic and environmental concerns related here. Uh, and it's just a large infrastructure project, one of the largest uh, we've seen recently uh, when it comes to highway expansion. So lots of implications if it were to go through for the Greater Toronto area. Yeah, and understanding that it is a multi-million dollar project, um, you also highlight several complications that come with highway expansion and specifically why you think that this project will not work, um, especially, particularly you introduced the concepts of induced demand to make your case. And I was wondering if you can tell us a bit more about why that's the case. Right, so traffic economists talk about induced demand. It has two parts, this latent demand and generated demand. So latent demand is importantly a mode switch in transportation. So these are consumers and commuters who are substituting away from say public transit or local roads or biking in favor of the highway. So these are people who already go from point A to point B um, but because there's more traffic capacity they now take the highway instead. And then there's another part called generated demand. And so economists, when they talk about generated demand, talk about a destination and route switch. So for example, say the local grocery store by you doesn't have good potatoes or something, and there's a better grocery store far away that has better potatoes and you say, hey, look, now I have more um, time because it's a quicker route because there's more traffic capacity. So I will take the highway and go to this better place. And we can we can take the potato example and think of other things. There's a better cinema with more selection. So a lot of these new trips are generated because of 
the increased highway capacity. But I add another dimension to generated demand, which is that particularly in the context of Highway 413, there's new housing and industrial development that pops up next to it. And so these, these communities are entirely dependent on this new highway as their primary source of, um, of transportation, primary source of trucks and delivery and so on. So that means that there is not only this mode switch of latent demand, people who are originally taking commuter rail, not only is there this generated demand of people going to better destinations or things that they are now within their, their reach, but there's also this additional generated demand from residential, commercial, and industrial zones and regions along this new highway expansion. And so the cumulative effect of all this is brand new traffic and it clogs the highway. So it is true that initially there is some traffic improvements when there's additional highway capacity. But because of these forces, eventually all these improvements get canceled out and we're back to square one with the same amount of congestion, if not more congestion than before. Yeah, thank you for elaborating on these two concepts. And I was wondering if there are any real life cases that kind of exemplify this phenomenon? Absolutely. You know, as far as I'm concerned, every time I sit on a wide highway, you know, Southern Ontario is full of them where I'm from, and I, I realize I'm surrounded by all this traffic for no particular reason. This is a prime example of this principle. But if we want to go from the anecdotal to more empirical evidence, a study by the Victoria Transport Policy Institute found that in 10 years, all the saving times are eliminated. And so this, this looked at um, various North American projects of highway expansion. And so it said, yeah, in a decade, the effect of induced latent and induced generated demand cancels out all this time savings because more people are taking the highway. So the best example, the most empirically studied example is the Katy Freeway in Houston, where they found that morning commute times after highway expansion incre increased by 30% in terms of travel time, so the additional 20 minutes or so. And in the evening, travel times increased by 55%. And so again, this is the consequence of those, those mode switches and generative demand. There's another counterexample to this, which is found in Seoul, where they removed a four-lane elevated freeway through the central business district, and it carried 168,000 cars per day. And so when there was an initiative to get rid of it, obviously there were a lot of people saying this will cause traffic chaos. But what happened was the removal had no impact on traffic. And the concept here is traffic equilibrium. The idea that traffic will increase up to the point that it gets too congested. So this doesn't matter if it's a very, very wide highway or if it's very narrow. Uh, eventually, if it reaches a point of congestion that people uh, just can't take it, they will go to other forms of transportation, whether it's biking, walking, um, public transit, what have you. There's two case studies as to why highway expansion doesn't work, but also a case study to show that highway removal or reducing capacity does work. So you highlighted a lot of the costs and potential problems that highway expansion, highway expansion uh, with Highway 413 might face, but there must be a reason that the Conservative government is still pursuing this project. Um, how would you weigh both the costs and the benefits of Highway 413? I'll start off with some of the benefits to give credit where credit's due. There are initial traffic benefits to highway capacity expansion. Studies show this. My point is, is that over time, these benefits are mitigated by the um, generated demand. 
But importantly, another talking point that the conservative government uses is they need an increase in housing supply. It's no secret that Canada is very unaffordable in its big cities and Toronto is extremely unaffordable. I think it's only second to Vancouver. And so there's an argument here that we need more housing supply and we need to build these types of homes and we need the infrastructure to provide that. So that is where the thinking goes on top of the gridlock points. Now, with respect to costs, I wanna separate the economic and environmental costs of the highway project. So the economic cost is pretty straightforward. It's minimum 6 billion, maybe significantly more than that, which is money that could otherwise go to other uses. But the environmental cost, I think is particularly bad because it's, it's irreversible or very, very hard to reverse. So you're destroying prime farmland close to a city, which is really important uh, for having your local produce and so on. But it also encourages vehicle car use, which is bad for CO2 emissions. So the kind of urban development, if we were to see it along this highway, is not environmentally sustainable. So the example I use in my paper is we compare Whitby, which is a um, commuter suburb of Toronto, and its CO2 emissions per capita is about 13 tons. If you contrast that to East York, uh, which is a borough within the city of Toronto. The, the, the local government here is a little bit complicated, but the point is, is that it's more dense, it's more walkable, it's by subway. It's 1.2 tons of CO2 per capita. So these car-centric suburbs use 13 times more CO2 per capita than more dense, more walkable communities. And if our goal is to have um, net zero emissions or just having more sustainable, environmentally friendly communities, we simply can't keep on encouraging these suburban uh, car-centric developments. And importantly, I'm not bashing suburbs. There's, there's, I recognize that it's important to have um, space. It's people don't like to be around skyscrapers and loud noise. But what's important is how car-centric these places are. And I think we can build uh, healthy, sustainable suburban communities that are environmentally friendly while ha be having high quality of life that people want to have. All right. And then I guess taking into account the economic and environmental costs that you just outlined, um, what are what are the alternatives that you suggest to highway expansion, highway expansion in the GTA? Absolutely. So I think the, the paradigm shift here is that it doesn't have to be this way. And I talk about this in my article, but there's this assumption that the Ontario PC government has used, and quite frankly, a lot of North American governments have used, which is that population growth needs to be accompanied with more low density housing and highway capacity. But that's just not the case. If you take a cursory look on Google Maps, which I, I do in my free time, but you know, it is what it is. Um, the GTA is approximately 120 kilometers wide uh, in built form, depending on where you draw the line from Hamilton to Oshawa, for those who know what that means. Uh, and within that, it fits about 7 million people. But if you look at the greater London area, not London, Ontario, of course, London, UK, it's about 55 kilometers wide, uh, so about half the space, and it has 9 to 10 million people, again, where you draw the line. Uh, Paris, uh, it's, uh, for its arrondissements, is about 12 kilometers wide and fits 2 million. And granted, the greater Paris area is, is a little bit wider than that and fits more people. But the, the big idea here is that the North American built form is uniquely sprawled, uh, uniquely poor in its land use. And so we don't need to have these low density housing communities that are car centric to fit population growth. I think what illustrates this point the best is that if you take a look at Tokyo and the highways around it, 
they have at most six to eight lanes, so three or four in each direction. And don't forget, Tokyo has a population of Canada in its urban area. Contrast that with the Greater Toronto Area's Highway 401, which is 22 lanes at its widest point, so approximately three times wider than the widest ones in Tokyo. And yet we have a fraction of the population of the Tokyo regional area. So the thinking here is North American citizens and our policymakers need to appreciate that we don't need to have wide highways and, and sprawling space to accommodate all our people. My alternative is to think about why we're commuting on highways. It's because we live far from where we want to go and we don't have other quick alternatives. So my solution here is we need to think about um, our urban development patterns. We need to live closer to where we work, where we play. And part of this means adopting missing middle housing that is dense enough to sustain services without building these skyscrapers that frankly, a lot of people don't like living around. And so if you look at the built form of a lot of the urban areas, not just the GTA, but Vancouver, Montreal, and uh, throughout the United States as well, there is a lack of this mid-rise housing that, um, that provides the necessary density and walkability to have the sustainable environment, uh, pardon me, sustainable communities that we're trying to achieve. And then the last piece of this puzzle is about public transit. And so the flashy and perhaps most obvious need is strong regional connections with commuter rail, commuter bus services, but it also means having reliable and frequent local bus services as well. And for Toronto's credit, Toronto does this exceptionally well um, with its 10-minute corridors throughout the city, but in the suburban areas, the local bus service is less frequent, less reliable. And so if that very easy fix is introduced, then we can have uh, a real alternative to to automobile traffic on highways. I'm just really interested by why you are personally so invested in like, maybe this is just like my, my lack of Ontario knowledge and what they, like what, how important these kind of infrastructural projects are to provincial politics, but what drew you into writing this article? Like, is there a personal tie? Is it your interest in urbanization and art like, infrastructure. Um, if you could talk about, like, as an author, why you decided on this issue, that would be great. Typically, when I when I write for the MIR, my stories have been about uh, more grand international things like the Suez Canal or uh, the agreement between the Vatican City and the People's Republic of China. But this one, the issue of highway expansion, in my mind, isn't just a, a regional thing. It's a, it's a, across the North American continent, we have this built form that is frankly unsustainable for, for our future. So while it is a, a more local take, I really try to tie it into this broader North American idea of what development means and how we accommodate our population growth. As for me, I, I always have loved issues of urbanism and, and built form. And I, I obviously care about the environmental future of tomorrow. And I, it sort of breaks my heart to see that our policy leaders just haven't learned these lessons. And so this article was a chance for me to sort of wave my fists in the wind and say, no, Ontario, we can't do this. Because, you know, Toronto's my home and I, I want it to be the best it can be. And frankly, I think that building a highway through protected farmland is a disastrous decision that will have huge impacts on the region, uh, a region that I love and is very close to home. Thank you so much for being on the pod again, Aiden. Thank you, Naomi. It's been a pleasure.
you did it that was so much fun all right that's, that's super cool so how do you how do you like edit it is like